We have to understand that reading the Word of God is something that is a privilege, it is a joy, but it is something we should endeavor to do uh, and work at it, to know what the Bible says, to, to know when uh, Paul is referencing the Old Testament, well, what is he talking about? When uh, Revelation doesn't directly quote the Old Testament, but yet you can catch the symbolism, then you can go back and find that out. And that helps you build the whole picture. Most of us just want to open our Bibles and pick a verse over here and pick a verse over here and, and pick a verse over here. And it doesn't help us in our growing to who God is. And uh, as we jump into the book of Revelation, you can see there on your notes that uh, uh, David Hawking states seven times in the book of Revelation, seven times the word shortly or quickly are used. Uh, John uh, fully anticipated that this was going to happen quickly. And some people will say, uh, well, it's been 2,000 years. Um, well, whether you believe literally or that it is a general rule of practice, but if a thousand years on earth is as one day in heaven, uh, it's not been that long. And so uh, John wrote this book from an isle of Patmos, and you can see there on the picture, if you've ever watched the news and wondered why Greece and Turkey, the two modern day countries are always fighting, it is because as you see there in the brown that is the uh, uh, the main area is Turkey, and these little islands are now part of Greece. And so around these islands, there are great oil deposits they are finding, uh, some natural gas deposits. And so Turkey is saying, I think we want them back. <laughs> and so you will see that. But this little island is only 13 square miles. Now, to give you a picture of that, McLeansboro, the city of McLeansboro, with the reservoir inclu included, or Lake McLeansboro, to be politically correct now, is three square miles. So a very small island. Uh, it, over history, had been used for great things and a flourishing uh, civilization there. But at this point in time, the Romans used it as a colony to throw prisoners and undesirables. That's who they threw on this island. And so Paul, uh, or John, would have been accused of witchcraft is what he would have been accused of from the Romans. Uh, it didn't matter if it was Christian, pagan, Jewish. If you practiced the belief that God could work and do miracles, they would have banished him there. And now if you were to go there today, there are two major, uh, two major things on this island that you could see. And the first is the Monastery of St. John. If you turn the page, you see that there. And that is a monastery on the highest point of the island. Uh, it is uh, from the 1100s, and it is full of art and uh, one of the most uh, visited uh, Christian heritage spots in the world. But right below that is the Cave of the Apocalypse, the cave halfway up uh, the mountain that, uh, that historians, traditionalists feel that that is where John received the book of the Revelation. And so you see here, it has been turned into a small area of prayer. Uh, this area would have been uh, conquered back and forth when you think about um, uh, Venice. And they would have sent their armies in over the years. The Turks uh, invaded and destroyed it. Uh, uh, Christian crusaders came back and took it. Uh, and then the Ottomans destroyed it. Uh, 
in Italy in the First Second World War took it over, then Germany took it over, and, and so it's just been one of those little islands that has faced great deals of destruction, uh, but yet these two very special places on this small island. And I say all that because um, it is very important to remember that John received this blessing even though he was being persecuted. And I hope that you will see that in your own life, that just because you have suffered persecution, just because you feel like you are on the outside looking in, uh, just like you feel that you don't belong, maybe, or you're, you're not as important as someone else, remember that God can bless you in a mighty way uh, when you're in those dark times, when you're in the valleys of life. And so that is kind of the setting of what happens in this book. And so when we come to verse 1 of this book, it just starts out, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. I have those underlined there because we're going to look at them underneath it. The revelation of Jesus can really be translated one of three ways or all three ways depending on how you're looking at it. It can be translated from or about or belonging to um, and but no matter how it is translated in in your commentaries in your Bible it should remember this one simple thing that the one single focus in the book of Revelation is Jesus Jesus is the focus he is the victorious king he is the judge he is the, uh, the one who in everything revolves around Jesus and uh, tonight I really want you to know that because so many times we can get caught up in worshiping the church that we attend. We, we can worship the Christian leaders that we follow. Uh, we can worship a pastor. But you need to be reminded that it's all about Jesus. Everything in the book of Revelation, everything in the rest of the word of God points to Jesus. And if you ever start to think in your walk with the Lord, that you talk about something or you think about something, even if it is religious in nature more than Jesus, you have created an idol. I believe in the security of the believer. I believe the Bible teaches that and I'm very thankful for it. But if I become someone who is more worried about the security of a believer than the one who secures me, I have made that an idol. If I love coming to church, and I do, I love I love you all. I love caring for you and praying for you and all of those things. But if you ever become more important than Jesus, you have become an idol. And so tonight I just really want you to focus in on that. Because while we go through the book of Revelations, we're going to disagree. We're not all going to have the same opinions on things. But remember this one simple thing. This book is written to point to us how Jesus wins how he is victorious. And because we are his, we get to celebrate and we get to be a part of that. 
And so in a world of confusion and difficulty and heartache, when we begin the book of Revelation, and there is a whole bunch in this book that I don't understand. And I've listened to hours and hours and hours. It has become an obsession. Um, I've always tried to prepare for Sunday mornings for 12 hours and Sunday night for 12 hours. And Wednesday night was kind of like the, um, the ugly you-know-what child. And uh, it usually gets like six hours. But since we started Revelation, it has gotten like 17 or 18 hours uh, because there is just so much. Uh, but yeah, it is just so in-depth. Never forget when you get in the thick of it to always look up, to always remember that it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, and so we're just going to look at this first section and then we'll stop and, and uh, uh, take any questions, thoughts. Uh, we look here at verse 2 and it says, Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. And this is really like legal terminology. And what it really means is something that we are reminded of. Think the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? It's this identity that everything in this book is true. And you say, why is that? Well, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, it's easy to look at some of those things and think, this can't happen. How is this even possible? And John wants you to know that everything in this book, even as confusing and as far-fetched as it might seem, is true. He wants you to believe the word of God. And when we see here this last part in verse 3, and there's a lot of confusion over this. Um, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Some scholars have said that if you read the book of Revelation out loud, then you have read it, you have heard it, and then if you obey it, God blesses you. But that's really not the context that it's in. If you know anything about the early church, this letter would have been sent, uh, and this individual would have taken this letter to a local congregation, and they didn't have uh, what we have, a Bible on every table, a Bible in every room. Someone would have read it to them. And what he's saying is the reader is blessed by it. The hearer is blessed by it. But really, the blessing comes from when you, what? Live it out or obey it. Live it out and obey it. Keep those things. And so you can read it, but if you just read it for head knowledge, or if you just read it so that you can argue with your friends, the blessing's not there. If you will listen to it and study it and then apply it to your life, the Bible says that there is a special blessing. And so when I hear someone say, well, I'm just not going to study the book of Revelation, it doesn't matter to you. It doesn't matter to me. What you're doing is robbing yourself of a blessing. And I don't know about you, but if they're going to give me a large chocolate milkshake for the same price as a small, I'm taking the blessing, all right? I'm not turning it down. And what we see here is he says, literally, God wants to bless you through knowing this and understanding it and living it out. And so I hope that you will view it that way, even when we get into that part that doesn't make sense, that part that is difficult or confusing, that there's a blessing. I can learn from this, I can apply this, and God will bless me. Uh, any questions about these first few verses, uh, the author, 
um, the setting, anything like that. So, uh, verses four through eight have quickly um, been growing on me uh, as just some verses that I cannot hardly read without being excited. And so many times I think that we read the Bible when we're tired, or we read the Bible when we first wake up, and so we read the Bible kind of like this. John to the seven churches, oh. which are in Asia. Where is Asia? Is that a country? Is that a continent? What, you know, that's how we read the Word of God. And, and honestly, most of us have been through church services long enough, uh, even my own sermons, and it's like, oh, is it ever going to end? Oh, it's so boring. We've sat through teachers that were boring. And what happens is, if you were to look at most people and say, what makes a growing, thriving church? They're going to say things like this. All oh, the youth, the youth program, that's where it's at. Other people are going to say, no, 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 it's the children's program. No, 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 it's the music, man. You knock it out of the park with the music and you have it. But friends, what should be the most exciting, the most refreshing, the most nourishing for us is when God's word is open, whether it is in Sunday school, whether it is in the sermon, and the word of God is taught. And I mean taught with truth, with the spirit, with uh, prayer, uh, just truly an excitement that we are literally opening the living word of God. The Bible says it is sharp enough to cut and to change lives and to set people free. The spirit of God using the word of God can change anything. And that's usually not how we view it, right? Most people are like, okay, song service went a little long. And uh, Jake usually goes a little long, uh, so we won't be at Dairy Queen until <laughs> closer to noon. And I wish, I, I would never do this because I don't believe in recording people during worship, but if we could just record how you look at the stage during the service, and like right after the song service, you're like, pretty good, I'm pretty happy, and then you sit down. You know, and you start to get comfortable, and then some guy says, if you would, please stand for the reading and reverence of God's word. And some of you are going, oh, you know how hard it is for me to get up? And uh, we read a few verses together, we pray. And once you get back down in your seat, once you get back down in your seat, it's just like, this is where I'm going to stay for the next 25 to 40 minutes, just like this. Your shoulders begin to slouch over a little bit. I know you're all carrying your Bibles. That's what's got you down and focused. But, um, it's just like the, count, the countenance begins to change. But it shouldn't be that way. It should be a time of God. What are you going to say to me? How are you going to speak to me? I'm not worried about what Jake says. I want to hear what you have to say to me. Or I believe your spirit and your word makes it clear that the word of God never returns void. Never. There's always something God will do in your life if you let him. And so, just want to throw that out there before we get started. Now, someone was saying something had to be Jared Bob. I heard a guy say, are we Catholic here or something? Oh, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. I like it. 
And if you guys smiled more, Jane wouldn't have to make you stand up as much. But think more and smile more. <laughs> but let's look here at verses four through eight. And tonight, I hope to be done fairly quickly since we drug it out the last couple times. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, and you see here uh, the seven churches are where we believe most likely they are at. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold. He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so if you look here in this passage of Scripture, starting in verse 4, um, we see him, we see the seven spirits, and we see Jesus Christ. Um, there's really a lot of confusion and disagreement over that second one there. The Father we understand, uh, the Son we understand, but that middle one. And uh, I want to just say what I believe. If you, if you have a different way of believing, that's fine too. Um, but what we see here is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You say, well, Jake, the Holy Spirit is not seven. He is one. You are correct. And so is there symbolism in the Bible that would lead us to believe that John is talking about the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yes, I believe there are. One, the book of Revelation is full of numbers. If you know anything about the number seven, it is a number of completion, a number of perfection, a number of wholeness. Something is one is complete. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and you should have all of these verses with you, we see seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Seven individual attributes that are given to the Holy Spirit. It could be a reference back to Zechariah chapter 4. And that's on the next page. Zechariah chapter 4, starting in verse 2 and 6. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the question is, what's going on? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord, Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, 
says the Lord of hosts. And so if John is referencing back like he has been in these prophetic books, it is this idea. And for us, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But to the churches that would have been getting these letters, many of them were Jewish. Many of them were Gentiles. Um, it would have made more sense having been students of the Old Testament by knowing what the words said. Now, do some scholars believe that these are, are seven angels? Yes. Do some people believe that uh, there are others? But I don't think when you look at the context of it uh, that it is. I believe it is a good indication of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Who are you looking for, Miss Jennifer? Sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Just trying to be helpful. Probably hanging out with the kids. For the fun stuff. Sorry. So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is important because there are many groups that claim to be long to the Christian faith, but yet have twisted and altered things about the Trinity that Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man, or he was a brother of Satan. But yet what John reiterates to us here is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but not in that order, Father, Spirit, and Son, which is not a big deal with regards to the order. But he goes on and says right after that, the faithful witness. And so you can believe what Jesus says. So, for instance, in John chapter 14, one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. You can trust that because it is Jesus speaking. He is faithful in every way. When he talks about that you may have life and have life more abundantly, you can believe that because he is faithful. And all the promises that Jesus made on this earth are because he is faithful. And John is pointing this out. But not only that, which that should cause you to get excited, because who the Son has set free, you are free indeed, right? And so all of those wonderful things that Jesus teaches us are true. The firstborn from the dead. And so he conquered sin and death and the grave. And because he did, we will. And so because of his victory over death and sin and the grave, we are able to partake in that. And so he's faithful, he's victorious, and ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, I think this is important because the rulers of this earth cause me much anger and much sin if you want to know the truth about it. I turn on the news, and I don't ever turn it on, but I read it, and I just think, how many dumb people cannot keep classified documents secure? Both parties. How, how terrible is this? And then another statement, and I, and I can sit there and think, it's over. These guys have drove the bus over the cliff. There's no coming back. And yet it shows us here that he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. There is nothing that the rulers of this world can do that has surprised Jesus that is out of his control. There are none of them that can conquer him. There are none of them that can do anything to us that the Lord does not allow. And so he is faithful, he is victorious, and 
He is in charge. And so I begin to think, amen. Praise the Lord for what he's done. And it's so important to remember those things because if you can't believe the word of God, if you don't believe the resurrection, and you don't believe that he truly is in charge, you are going to live a miserable life. I just mean that. I don't know how anybody who is now Bible-believing Christian makes it. I don't have a clue. Well, I trust the government. I trust my money. Remember 2008? I trust my health. Right? It, it, none of it lasts. None of it. You say, well, I, I'm trusted in our military might. We can't even find enough shells to arm Ukraine, let alone fight China. You say, well, Jake, I, I just I, I trust security and, and, and all the safety nets that we have. You've been to the southern border? You drove downtown Chicago? No, why? Because you'll get shot or murdered. That is the world that we are living in. But yet the book of Revelation starts by saying, faithful, victorious, and in charge. And so when I lay my head on the pillow at night and I'm finishing up praying for my children, uh, you guys always get the first prayer. But when I lay my head on the pillow and I really get serious about going to sleep and making sure, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm right with you and I, Lord, forgive me for anything that's gone on in my life today. And I pray for my kids and my wife. I can go to sleep knowing that he's on the throne. And that if I don't wake up absent from the body, it's present with the Lord. Because why? He is faithful victorious and in charge. Uh, any questions, uh, thoughts? All right. You have to speak up because I'm deaf. Uh, so what we see here is, and these moving on in this uh, same group of uh, verses here, uh, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins, and in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to be his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he gives three attributes of who he is. And now he gives us three things that he has done for us. The children of God. The first there you see is loved us. And most of us would say, oh, how he loved you. Yes, you can sing it better than I can. Right. And so we think about love he loved us right and you think about oh i was oh, i loved her so much and we got married but yet when you look at this word it's not past tense it's present and what it really means is that he keeps on loving us he doesn't just love us at calvary he doesn't just love us when he saves us he keeps on loving us it's present it is something that is ongoing and I don't know if you know this, Ron, but I can feel pretty unlovable. Now, I know you don't think that about yourself, but when I think about the things that I can do and the sins that I can commit and the way that I fail God, I can think, man, I don't even love me very good. How could he? But it's a reminder that he keeps on loving us through our failures, through our sins, through our discouragement, through our brokenness. He keeps on loving us. Thankfully, his love never fails. 
And so whether you feel tonight that you are someone who is serving God or you feel that you are someone who has failed him so much that he could never have a purpose and place for you, you are mistaken because he keeps on loving us. The second thing in this passage of scripture, he says he washed us. He washed us. And so what it's talking about is when Jesus died on the cross for you and he shed his blood on Calvary, it was so that you could be washed as white as snow. We call it the substitutionary death. He died instead of us. He died in our place. And so it says there, though, what? And washed us from our sins in his own blood. When Jesus died for you and saved you and you accepted his free gift of salvation, you truly are blameless and innocent in the eyes of God. Does that mean you live innocent and blameless? Absolutely not. But when the Father looks at you because of what Jesus did and how he shed his blood on the cross for you, you are as white as snow. It's called imputed righteousness, one of those big church words that we don't use, that his righteousness is placed in my account. His perfection is accounted to me while I cannot be perfect. And the third thing, kings and priests. And what we believe is the priesthood of the believer. Now, this is different from other kinds of churches that have maybe priests or not priests. But what the Bible teaches us is that there is one high priest, his name is Jesus. He is the only one who could sacrifice. He is the only one that did sacrifice. And now he is set at the right hand of the Father. And all believers who come to faith in Jesus have the same access to the Father because of him. That means, according to the Bible, there is no need for you to come to me and ask for forgiveness for your sins. I cannot forgive you. I can listen to your mistakes. I can be your accountability partner, but if you can find anybody else, please do it. And this is why. Because if you tell me you struggle with anger, every time I preach on anger and I just happen to glance your way, you know what you're going to say? He's, he's talking to me and I told him that. I never should have told him that. I don't look at eyes anymore if you haven't noticed. I just look right over the top of all of all the time because some of the wonderful looks I've got. Or maybe you're having marriage trouble and you came and talk about it. And I'm preaching a sermon on marriage and loving your wife. And I'm looking over here and you're sitting there. Next thing I'm going to get a call is, you shouldn't call me out like that in the sermon. Dude, I'm preaching through a book. I don't know what to tell you. And that is that way. I... I when I stand up to preach, this is always my prayer privately. God, let me forget everything that they have ever told me so that I can preach what you have for them. Because I don't know about you, but I remember things. I remember my stupidity and yours. And my stupidity affects how I view things, and your stupidity affects how I view things, right? That's why we have a hard time forgiving our spouses, because why? We see them, we're reminded of them, but yet the priesthood of the believer, and I want to read this to you in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises 
of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And so God has made you a royal priesthood, a nation, so that we can proclaim to others what God has done for us. And this is very important because what that means is you have the same rights to open up the word of God and study as I do. You have the same right to pray and to ask for forgiveness and seek the Lord's direction and purpose and plan for your life as I do. And for many of you, if you've always been in a Baptist church, that doesn't really, it doesn't just shock you. But you need to recognize that some of the largest churches in the world are still under that belief that you have to go through a person. But yet what we see here is that Jesus has made us into his priest, into his family, uh, joint heirs with Jesus. And I know in Illinois you got to be careful when you say that word anymore, but uh, co-rulers and co-reigners, we're not little gods like um, some cults teach us, but yet we're brought into the family of God. And when you have a need and everything falls apart in your life, you can go straight to him. You can take your request, your burdens, your sins to him. He will forgive you. There's nothing keeping you from coming to him. That's why the book of Revelation ends with come. Come, those who thirst. Jesus said it uh, in the come. Come. Why? Because, because of what he has done. He has made access for us. Questions? We're just going to keep jumping on along then. Uh, so we're looking there in verse 6. So verse 7. Behold, pay attention, look, listen. He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And so what he is saying is the Lord is coming back. He's coming back. Now, there are disagreements in how you believe about the unfolding of the book of Revelation. I told you I'm a pre-tribber. I'm a dispensationalist. That's where I fall on the spectrum, and you can disagree with me, and that's fine. All right? But what I believe he's talking about here is when he comes back uh, to destroy his enemies uh, at the Battle of Armageddon. Okay? Um, and so at the end of the tribulation period, he comes, he defeats his enemies, he sets up the millennial reign. All right? That's what I believe. This is important, I think, because when it's talking about the second coming, and we go to the book of Daniel, and we go to the book of Zechariah, it talks about him coming to the earth. When we read about the rapture of the church, it doesn't teach us that the Lord comes all the way to the earth, does it? It says that in the twinkling of an eye we shall be change we shall be called up there's no reason to be called up if he is down here and so i really think this is what he's talking about when he's coming back to rule and destroy his enemies and so in daniel chapter 7 is where this is being referenced from even though he doesn't quote it daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and 14 i was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed, coming for the Jews, or which will not be uh, destroyed, uh, not be destroyed. So it's talking about he's coming in the clouds, he's coming to destroy his enemies, and uh, that is going to take place. And so we have to believe that the Lord is coming back. The Lord has a purpose and a plan that he is not going to let evil run rampant forever, that he's not going to let the rulers of this world uh, be blasphemous forever. Uh, he's not going to let culture and people mock him forever. At some point, enough is enough. But I don't want you to think it's all negative. Because in that next verse down below this, He's talking about how God is going to save and God is going to work in that last hour. And this is really important because we have no idea if this is going to be an hour, a time of minutes or hours. We don't know the time frame on this. But when it all falls apart and the Lord begins to come back, look what it says in chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. And while the 144,000 evangelists are going to be reaching and seeing people saved and lives are going to be changed, when the Lord comes and splits the eastern sky, some people say at that moment it's too late. But I disagree. I think when the Jewish people see the Lord coming in the clouds, there will be millions of them believe. Believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus. You say, well, Jake, I don't agree with that. Well, that's all right. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his own son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And then it goes on and talks about the families in Israel, the family of David and the family of some others. And it's this identity that while the rest of the world is facing judgment, that we must not forget that as God places his focus on Israel and the Jewish people, that his intent is to bring them back, to bring them back to him. It's not to destroy them. It's not to, to ruin them. It is to restore them and for them to receive the blessings that he has through the person of Jesus Christ. It's not that they are just Jewish, but they are his chosen people. We know that he has a plan and purpose for them. And so it is a great time of judgment for all those who don't believe, but it is a great time of salvation for those who do. And that is how you must remember the book of Revelation. There is great judgment. There is great heartache. There is great pain, but yet there is great joy. There is great celebration. And that is how it is throughout all of life, right? Jesus is either the stumbling block or he is your savior, right? The word of God is something that he uses to draw you or it is something that pushes you away. And so God has always operated this way and it should cause us to be thankful because God is merciful. That, that terminology there in verse 10 and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. 
that pouring out, right? Some places it could be uh, translated like a drink offering. Uh, some people disagree over that, but it's this idea of what they need is being poured out to them. And what they need is not judgment, but it's grace. It's the grace to believe and accept that Jesus is who he says he is. And I think it's interesting because they will look on me, whom they pierced. He says, the first time I came, they rejected me. First time I came, they crucified me. This time I'm coming in all power and authority. And I'm going to bring judgment, but I'm also going to bring grace, mercy, supplication. And so it just brings us a great encouragement. And the last thing, and I'll be done a little early tonight, says there, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And uh, I say that because the I am statement here that he starts this with is a reminder that God is in charge. And we have no reason to doubt or fear. No reason to doubt or fear. We know the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek, uh, Greek alphabet. Um, and so there's all those studies that you can go into that. But it's just a reminder that he is in charge and I have no reason to doubt and fear. And I think that is a wonderful way to view the book of Revelation. Is to understand that I'm not to fear. That I'm not to doubt. And I think if we've seen anything over the last few years, it doesn't take very much to cause fear in God's people. Whether it's through health, whether it's through finances, whether it's through the threat of violence, and all of these other things, God wants you to believe Him, trust Him, and fear not.